This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. Let's go to the bullpen with Adam the Bull on the Bet Rivers Network. We're talking with the great Terry Francona. I know everybody poo-poos baseball fights. They're like, hey, you go out there and everybody's just talking yeah. and shoving. But when you get out there, man, those guys are big. They they get after yeah. it. And when they get after it, man, look out. It makes you a little nervous. Robin Ventura still won't talk about Nolan Ryan to, to this day. <laughs> he wants nothing with that conversation. Listen to the bullpen with Adam the Bull on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's uh, podcast. Mike Francesa here. So uh, an interesting week in baseball as we get ready to send the Yankees on the road where Friday they'll hit Baltimore and the Mets finally come home. And it will be a very big Friday home opener for the Mets. Not only the enthusiasm and the anticipation to the season, but also they are unveiling the Tom Seaver statue on Friday at uh, 10.30 in the morning in a celebration. They're having a uh, whole Seaver celebration on opening day. You have uh, Jackie Robinson Day. So you have that. The Diamondbacks are in. So if you're looking for a team that might be a comfortable opponent too on opening day for the Mets, uh, all that coming up. So the Mets who will finish up in Philly uh, and are off to a good start. Hey, they're an inch away or a couple of pitches away. Well, really it was defense in one game and then the relief pitching in the second game that cost them two games uh, in Philadelphia. But um as they get ready to close down the series uh, this afternoon uh, with Scherzer on the mound. Uh, They've played well. They've done a good job, and now they'll get to finally have their home opener. So they're off to the start you would hope for. Yes, you're worried about the brittle nature of the rotation. I mean, that is something you're going to have to deal with. The news on both pitches wasn't bad, so that's a positive. It wasn't anything alarming. It was uh, the best kind of news you could have gotten. But you still have the Mets with too many guys who are key to what they are doing. Still, you know, waiting to get their act together as far as the rotation goes. And, of course, remember, we're still going to be a good two months before we see the Grom. I mean, anything before that would be uh, surprising. But the Mets are off uh, just fine to start the season, and uh, everyone is looking forward to the opener on Friday. The Yankees, uh, again, they've gotten a chance to see the Red Sox, who you know will be right there. They're well-managed. They'll get better. They have a good core. They have some issues in their uh, pitching, no question. I think both places in the rotation and in the bullpen. But they do have some very good players in that lineup. They have some superb players who are just great everyday talents, and they'll continue to be a threat and be right there. But without question, the class of the division as we start the season is Toronto. That team, in terms of power, in terms of power pitching, in terms of just athleticism and just uh, players who can make a difference, they have a lot going for them. And... uh, I would say right now the Yankees are going to have to be at their best to be as good as Toronto this year. That's how good uh, the Blue Jays are. The Yankees have some uh, questions they have to answer. They have plenty of questions they have to answer in the pitching staff. But they do have enough people. As I've said to you before, the Yankees have enough people on the roster to answer any question they have. It's not like they can't answer it without going outside. They can But everything has to fall into place, and they need to find the comfort level with the everyday lineup because juggling people as much as they are, it might look like something you can do very easily, and you're going to say somebody's going to get hurt, and probably somebody will. But the bottom line is it's still a tricky thing to do with guys who expect to be in the lineup every day to have them have to sit down 
sit down when they get hot, sit down when they don't want to sit down. So from that standpoint, it's it's a delicate juggling act that Boone has on a daily basis with this Yankee lineup right now. But again, hey, it's a team that without any question it will compete and will uh, be right there uh, as far as the playoffs are concerned. The question is, can they put the pieces together that will make a difference come October? And, hey, you're not going to answer that question tomorrow. You're going to answer that question over the long haul. Busy program this morning. Mike, uh, Mark Feinstein is going to join us from the MLB Network. You know, Mark, who covers the Yankees and the Mets, and he's got a new Yankee book. Bobby V will check in from the coast. He's out in California still, but he will check in this morning too. So we have him on a very busy program. We'll get it all rolling right after. You're listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. A familiar name and voice, Mark Feinsand, the uh, executive reporter, one of the MLB insiders for the MLB Network, and a busy author. He's churning out book after book. He's got another one coming out on the Yankees in. Uh, June, and he joins us now. Mark, welcome. How are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you? Good, thank you. All right, what's the the book, the franchise, comes out? Let's plug that first. Comes out in June. What's what's the uh, what's the deal with the with with the franchise? What's the what's the twist and turn with this Yankee book? Well, it's kind of a curated history of the team. We uh, you know started out at the beginning, went pretty much through through current times, and. Just took a whole bunch of different stories, different thematic chapters. Looked at the you know the biggest hits in, in team history and talked to the people who were involved in those and the captains and the legends and you know the sort of it's impossible to cover the entire history of an organization like this in uh, in less than four hundred pages. But we gave it our shot. And more current than old, or is there as much Ruth as there is say Steinbrenner? I would say there's probably uh, probably about a seventy thirty split. You know, I, I couldn't get Ruth or Garriger Mantle on the phone, so I had to uh, uh, go with what I could get from from you know historical uh, information on those guys. But you know, starting in the seventies, uh, you know, some of those guys from the seventies, Gidry and Randolph, and uh, you know, guys like that, all the way to current times. Uh, there's a whole chapter on the architects of the team, looking back at guys like Ed Barrow and Jacob Rupert, all the way to George and Hal and, and Brian Cashman and Joe Torre. So. Uh, you know, we uh, we tried to hit as much of it as we could. You know, it's one of the it is one of the great business decisions and great buys in the history of this country. George Steinbrenner bought the Yankees for about a and this is almost hard to fathom for about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in cash if you go through the whole deal the way they sold back uh, parking garages and the whole thing. The deal was under $10 million at the time, which is absurd when you think about what they're worth now. But the bottom line is it is one of the great, great purchases. You talk about Manhattan for 24 bucks. The Yankees, for what he paid for them and what it cost him out of his pocket as a Cleveland businessman is unbelievable. Believable. It is one of the great buys of all time. It has churned off billions in revenue to its partners, and there's always been partners, as people you know, and George was always the managing general partner, which meant he owned more than 50% of the team, but he didn't own that much more than 50. He had partners, guys who were six percenters and four percenters and three percenters, Lester Crown, Gold Clang, guys like that. And they all made a lot of money, and George made a lot of money and wrote himself a lot of loans out of the Yankees producing revenue. And you realize now if Hal turns around and sells it, which I don't, don't think is out of the question some, one of these days, uh, you'd be talking about a deal up in the $7, 8000000000 billion worth probably, maybe even more by the time that the deal struck. So, I mean, it is one of the great purchases of all time. Yeah, it's pretty astounding to think that uh, if you had told George Steinbrenner back in the early 70s that this $160,000 investment was going to spawn off generational wealth for the rest of time for his family, I don't think you would have believed that. Uh, you know, he, he wanted in uh, to be a part of the action, and we obviously he was a part of the action for his entire tenure as the owner. Um, but to, I don't think even he could have envisioned what the sport would become and, and certainly what the franchise would become. Uh, you know, with the new stadium and it's on TV network and everything else that comes with that Yankee brand, uh, it really is it's quite fascinating. 
No, it's amazing. Uh, it really, you know, because people were like, Steinbrenner was this, he was that. Hey, what he was more than anything else was a shrewd businessman. He, he was, and he was a great PR guy. Now, listen, he did a lot of goofy stuff. I mean, I listen, I, he didn't talk to me for two years once because I brought Howie Spear in the studio and, and grilled him. Uh, he was so mad that we, that we grilled him, and, you know, and he really killed George, as a matter of fact, during that whole time. Uh, he made some bad steps, as we know. But the point is, when you look at it in totality, it is, he not only left an incredible uh, legacy in terms of how much he won, but the business end of it is just astounding. And, you know, you're talking about a brand now that ranks with any brand worldwide that you could put up there and is a, you know, multi-billion dollar business. Uh, it really is uh, astounding. And that's an interesting twist because you can tell that Hal wants to run this and you can see that it's something the Yankee fans are not used to. He wants to run this very, very differently in a very different era than George did. Yeah, I, I mean, mean you have, yeah, you have to think about it this way, Mike. The, the entire sport basically put rules in place to prevent George from being George. So right. the game that Hal is playing right now, it's chess compared to checkers, right? I mean, the, there's no way that Hal could do what George did. Impossible. There are, You're there right. are, it's impossible. And, yeah. and this narrative out there that drives me crazy is the whole, he's cheap, he doesn't care about winning, he's not his father. The man has a $250 million payroll right now. So you can't sit there and say, oh, they're being stingy, uh, right? I mean, they, they had some holes to address. They went out and, and bought a former MVP third baseman um, with a shortstop who can pick it, uh, you know, with, with a shrewd trade. Uh, rather than just going out and signing Correa for $35 million a year, uh, it's the way that Brian Cashman envisioned doing business in terms of better fitting the ball club. But Hal is, is, you know, the man spends over $200 million a year on payroll. Uh, go talk to people in Pittsburgh and Baltimore and Oakland and ask them if they think Hal Steinbrenner's cheap. No, listen, it's, re it's a ridiculous uh, statement uh, to, or, or, or premise that the Yankees don't spend money. They do, but they now are in a place where a very unusual place because the Mets, who have always been such a poor comparison for the Yankees, the 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 uh, younger brother who doesn't have the goods. Okay, now you have the richest man in baseball and a guy who doesn't care how much money he spends and doesn't care if he loses a bunch of money if he can build a championship team and will go way, way over the luxury tax. I think you will see that uh, as this unfolds. It's a very different place for Hal from that standpoint because you have a exceedingly wealthy man across town now. No question. And I think, you know, the fact that the new CBA basically has a, a, a CBA, a CBT threshold, Specifically, the, the, uh, you know, put in there for Steve Cohen. Yes. You know, people are, are jokingly referring to it as the Steve Cohen tax. I don't think he's going to care. He's he doesn't say, care. That's no problem. Now, you know, the, the one place where that could come back is that once you start passing those second and third thresholds, you start losing draft picks, and it's not just about money. Um, so we'll have to see if his baseball people can say to him, look, maybe it's not so wise to do this. I don't think he's going to care. I think he's going to spend what he needs to spend. But the bottom line is the Mets are going to need to win a World Series to make that validated. Uh, and even then, you know, the Yankees have such the history in this town, the 27 championships, everything else. Um, I don't know that one World Series is going to do it to put the Mets sort of past the Yankees. But if Steve Cohen is determined to spend the kind of money that people think he's going to spend, and he's going to do it for the next 5, 10, 15 years, and the Mets start collecting championships the way the Red Sox did in the first 20 years of, of this century, then I think things will get really interesting. I've only seen, and we're talking about Mark Feinstein, MLB uh, reporter. Uh, you know him from the days back with the Daily News. Uh, you know, Mark, I've only seen two times in my years here, as I get into my later 60s, I only seen two times when the Mets really owned the town. Uh, one was 69, where everybody, even Yankee fans, were caught up and swept up in what the Mets were doing. Plus, remember, it was the first year after Mickey Mantle retired. I mean, it was a new Yankee team. Uh, Mickey retired March 1st, 1969. Mets take off 1969. So it's an enormous swing. The Yankees have been bad for four years. In the later decaying years of the 60s, Mickey hung around. And just for attendance reasons, really, more than anything else, 
uh, hit a couple of home runs and got paid um, and watched his batting average sink under 300, which bothered him immensely, which he told me once in an interview is the thing that bothered him most in baseball because he was a 300 hitter, but he hit 298. Um, the other thing was, the other time was in the mid 80s where the team, when they went and got Hernandez and they got Carter, and they had the the brilliant pitching that they went out and procured. You know, people don't realize most of those guys came in trades. Uh, and then had Gooden and Strawberry. That was the only time where the Mets had a chance to really just take off and hide. And what happened is that team really disappointed because that team was built to win three or four championships. It didn't have a wild card entry into the postseason. And then it had its own issues, drugs and everything else to deal with. And only won one title. Otherwise, they would have owned the team for a lot, uh, the the uh, the city for a lot longer. And then when the Yankees got it with the '96 team, that became a level of popularity that I had never seen with the Yankees before. That grew and grew and grew for decades, and just put the Mets so far into the second place they almost didn't exist from where the Yankees were in the late 90s. Uh, so they only had those two moments. So it'll be interesting to see if they can capture it again. It will not be easy to do, and it will take, as you said, more than one championship to do it. Well, you know, the thing I think about those two eras you just talked about, Mike, 69 and then the, the mid-80s, the Yankees weren't good. So the Mets were, were starring in the city. They were making the playoffs. They won a couple of World Series, and the Yankees weren't getting to October. Now, if, no matter how well the Mets do – the Yankees are still a threat. The Yankees are still relevant. They're still going to be in the postseason, most likely. Um, and so it's not like you can just say, oh, the Mets are going to be in the back page every day because the Yankees stink. That was the case back then. That's not the case now. So, and you mentioned, I mean, the 90s, obviously, you know, obviously with the Jeter teams, uh, so popular. And even when the Mets got to the World Series, who was waiting for them there but the Yankees? So, yeah, and that, um, you know, that, Mets, and, and that was a, the, the biggest disappointment. You know that? Um, of all the things I ever did on the air, that laid a dud. It really never was, you know, we thought that would be, you know, we always said, what would happen if the Giants and Jets met in the Super Bowl? Well, we've never even come close. But what would happen if the Yankees and Mets played in the World Series, like the old days, you know, of what we had in New York, the Subway Series? It was the biggest disappointment from a standpoint of energy and enthusiasm that I ever remembered. It was not nearly as big as I thought it would be. It really, it really wasn't. And the Yankees found it distasteful, which was part of it because George put so much pressure on them uh, to win. They really found the whole thing distasteful and didn't like being a part of it. And it, it really did not take off. Uh, Dog and I have said this many times, probably the biggest disappointment of all of any great big event that we had in this town was that it just never really exploded the way we thought it would. Yeah, I think that's partially because the Yankees were in, you know, towards the end of that run. They'd won back-to-back World Series going into it. The Mets were sort of a surprise team to be there. And I don't think anybody, except for maybe the most diehard Met fan, really thought the Mets had a chance to win that series. And so when you go in and you're saying, well, it's just a matter of whether the Yankees win in four or five, or, you know, if the Mets can push it to six, you're talking about a big win there. Uh, it just didn't have the competitive juice. Um, you know, game one was a great game. But once the Yankees pulled that game out, it was sort of like, oh, so this is just how this is going to go. And it just never, you know, they pulled within, you know, the 2-1 after game three. But I just don't think anybody realistically thought that the Mets were going to have a chance to win. And Jeter had a leadoff home run. And it's like, all right, well, this one's over. Uh, it, it just it just never had the competitive fire that you see in some of the great World Series, um, you know, that sort of build through the World Series. By the time it got to game four, Game five, it was just sort of like, okay, this is just going to be another Yankee championship. And and the Mets felt that they did all the interviews and they and the Yankees did nothing. And they really, that annoyed the heck out of them. The Yankees were no, no, no about everything. And the Mets did everything. And they just felt like everything was put upon them. And it really bothered them. And George was impossible, as you know, during that series, uh, putting a lot of pressure because he didn't want to lose, which we all know. But it was it was different. And you're right, because if game one, which the Mets should have won, I mean, they make colossal mistakes on the base pass for Timo Perez. They obviously, you know, walk O'Neill to start the, 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 the rally. I mean, the bottom line is 
uh, they could have won and should have won that game. If they did, that would it could have been a very interesting series because uh, that that team was playing well at the time and even came back. You remember in Game Two they came back and 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 scared the heck out of the Yankees with that three run home run by Jay. I think it was Jay Payton a three run home run in Game Two, if I remember right. Yeah, you know, although I'm, I'm surprised to hear that Bobby Valentine would have been irked by having to do a lot of interviews. It seems like yeah, that. not him. They're the players. You know, yeah, not 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 him. No, Bobby never. You know, you know that. Not 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 Bobby ever. But the Yankees were nowhere to be found during that series. They were as quiet as they could possibly be, uh, and it, it just was an enormous contrast. But uh, you know, it's when you look at them now, uh, it, it's interesting because they're fairly. If the Grom's healthy, they're, they're, they're fairly close teams. I mean, they're both low 90s win teams in their divisions. They both have a chance to maybe put the right pieces together. But they're both vulnerable in their own way. I, for one, don't like the Yankee team. I, I don't like – I haven't liked the Yankee team in years. I don't like all the right-handed hitters. That's why I was big on keeping Rizzo. I was very big on keeping him. And I thought they weren't going to do it. I was very happy they brought him back. I don't like – what they've done in a lot of ways with the way they juggle the lineup, juggle the positions. They're way too right-handed to me and still way too uh, you know, vulnerable to good right-handed pitching in key spots, especially out of the bullpen. I just There's things about the team I just don't love that they haven't been able to get around, to be honest with you. Well, just think about it. The, the three lefty hitters in their lineup right now, when you've got you know, Rizzo and Joey Gallo and then Hicks, the switch hitter, those guys weren't even there for the first four months last year. So if you think they're too right-handed now, just yes. think back to what they were a year ago. I do, yeah, uh, and I think they, and I, that's I why I wanted to keep Rizzo. I mean, I'm not a Gallo fan. He's not the kind of guy I like anyway. He's a, too feast of famine. Plus, I don't know if he can play in New York. And I'm not. I've never been a Hicks guy, to be honest with you. I think he's a good fielder, but I don't think he's a big. I don't think he's an everyday player. I mean, I don't think he's a good everyday player. I I just don't love anything about that lineup. And now the idea of juggling it, I think, is hard to juggle that lineup every day like they have to do. I mean, that, that's a tricky thing to do. It is, and Aaron Boone's got a, a tricky job ahead of him. Of Every day he's got to tell one of those infielders, you're not playing today, uh, unless they're DHing, in which case you know, you're sitting Hicks or Stanton or Judge. So, uh, you know, it, it is definitely an uncomfortable situation now. We've seen enough baseball over the years to know someone's going to get hurt, and then they're not going to have yep. that problem for a while. So, yep. uh, you know, they've protected themselves in a number of positions. Shortstop's really the only one where they're still vulnerable to an injury because if, if Falefa gets hurt and you have to put Glaber back there, that's a problem because uh, he just he just is not a good shortstop. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't think they will do that. I don't think they want any part of that. As a matter of fact, I think they. I, they, I, I think they went into the season saying there's two things we're going to do. We are going to straighten out shortstop and straighten out catcher, and that's the two things they went out and did. You know. Yeah, hundred percent. And so, you know, to me, the lineup. I don't have so much of a problem with the lineup. I, I'm more concerned if I'm the Yankees about the starting pitching. Yep, I, I agree. Think, you know, Cole Cole's going to be fine. I think he'll, he'll be who he is. Um, you know, Severino hasn't been healthy. In three years, if he looks like the guy who finished in the top three in the Cy Young Award, oh, that's huge for them. I don't know that he will be. Uh, you know, Montgomery, nice back of the rotation arm. Tyon has not proven that he can, uh, you know, be a top of the you know, number two guy behind Cole. I just feel like there's a lot of question marks in a rotation that, uh, you know, they're going to need to, to lean on because they're not going to go out and score eight runs a night. They're going to score runs. They're, you know, I don't think they're as bad as they were last year. I don't think they're as good as they've been the year, the year or two before that. Uh, I think they're somewhere in the middle of that. But, you know, you, you can't get through 162 games with a rotation that doesn't give you distance and doesn't, uh, you know, sort of let your bullpen rest once in a while. And aside from Cole, obviously, once the season sort of gets into the season and guys are throwing their normal workloads, aside from Cole, who can you depend on to go out there and throw seven innings on any night? No, and, and you know what? I don't, you know, I don't think he's made for this town either. I mean, he's got a very sensitive side. Look at his nonsense on opening day. I mean, it was ridiculous. You're going to blame Billy Crystal because she didn't get on the mound on time? I mean, give me a break. I mean, please. I mean, you know, you get taken deep, you get taken deep. You're going to blame Billy. Of all people, you're going to blame Billy Crystal for this. I mean, I mean, that's just utterly. He has a very sensitive side to him. And I don't know about the whole stuff with the, the substance and how much he needs it and the whole deal there because who knows i mean i i i just don't know how much he needs to fall back on that stuff or how much any of these guys do 
But the bottom line is, we know he has talent, but I have not seen him yet look really good in a big game when I've seen him. You know, he blew up last year in games that, that were critical to them, uh, where he didn't do the job that he needed to do. A hundred percent. And, you know, I don't know if that's New York. I don't know if that's the, uh, you know, the stress and the weight of a gigantic contract uh, on your shoulders. You know, some guys find those huge deals and then spend the next five years just doing, trying to do more than they should or yep. they can to try to justify the contract, right? Um, you know, we saw Alex Rodriguez go through that in New York to some extent. Uh, I think that was a combination of New York, the contract, Jeter, the whole thing. Everybody but goes through it. You know, just, the, the worst thing that ever happened just, to A-Rod you know, was coming to the Yankees. It was the worst place for him to go. Let's be honest. It was the, the absolute. Was, if he had gone to Boston, his career would have been completely different. I agree 100%. He would have still been a shortstop. He would have been, yep. uh, you know, not gone to a team that was necessarily somebody else's team. You know, I remember he was going to be yep. traded for Manny, so Manny wouldn't have even been there. Um, you know, I look at Cole, it's natural to think back to Sabathia. He signed that huge contract with the biggest pitching contract of all time, and it clearly didn't affect him. He came in. No, he pitched very good. His first, first five years, he was very good. He was outstanding. Yes. And so after you have that, uh, you know, that history to fall back on in New York, people are willing to, you know, live with some bumps and bruises after that. And obviously he had some other issues that, um, right. you know, that, that are completely separate from that. But Cole falls into that category of if you don't get it done in your first couple of years, then people start saying, oh, maybe he can't do it here. And I thought for like when you think back to that 09 team with Sabathia, with Teixeira, um, you know, you, you think they won right away. And that sort of took the burden off of them of having to justify all of the money that they got and the decisions the Yankees brought to bring them in. Now, you look at Stanton, you look at Cole, you look at some of these big guys they've brought in who are making tons of money, and it's, okay, well, what have you done for us lately? We're still on, you know, we're now going on year 13 without a championship, and you haven't, you were supposed to come in here to fix that, and you haven't done that yet. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure on these guys to go out and win. I mean, I know for, for a fan base like Cleveland, they're looking at a 13-year uh, drought and saying that's not a drought, that's 13 years. But for the Yankees, that's, a, that's an eternity. And oh, so, it sure is. Uh, you know, a lot of, lot of pressure on these guys. Talk about Mark Feinstein. You know, um, the judge thing, the Yankees won, but do they really win? Because uh, do they lose for winning? Because the idea that the public sided with the Yankees on the negotiation doesn't help Judge getting booed when he's in, in his own ballpark. Uh, it's not what you were looking to do. You weren't trying to create more pressure on him to gain an advantage to the end of the season on it. And I don't think it will bother judge. I, I don't think uh, any scrutiny will bother him. I think he, we know how pronounced his talent is. He is who he is. The reason I wouldn't pay him is he's 30 years old next week. I mean, he's not 22. He's not 23. He's 30. So I don't want to pay him in his late thirties. That's the only reason I'll pay him now. I would have given him, I would have sat down with him and said, I'll give you a really good four-year contract. I don't want to give you a longer contract than that. You're going, you're going to be 30 years old in, uh, in 10 days. Yeah, and they offered him a seven-year extension, which would have taken him through his age 37 season. That, that's pretty good faith in, in current Major League Baseball. That you was a good a deal. That was a, he doesn't it have to take it, and, he has, and I'm, I'm for anybody wanting to turn down any deal they want. You've got to live with what happens. But now it worked in the Yankees' favor, but that's not a positive when it works in their favor. They're not trying to have their best player be scrutinized every time or be booed at the ballpark, which he already has been. So it, it didn't work in their advantage, and who knows where that puts him at the end of the year. See, to me, at his age, he doesn't have the vantage point that some guys do. He's not, you know, he's not a guy who's 22 years old and has all that talent like some of the other kids do that, that are pushing for these contracts. That's a different deal. I mean, if you're 22, it's one thing. He's 30 years old already. I mean, I'd be very leery of that if I'm the Yankees. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, the fact, I don't, look, I don't think he's going to be affected on the field this year by all of this, but I don't know how this is going to play into his mind at the end of the year when other teams are offering him similar deals to what the Yankees are. And he says, you know what? I, I don't have to deal with this anymore. Right. Um, the fact that these two sides are going to go to an arbitration hearing in the next, you know, four, six, eight weeks, that's also a little tricky, right? You're going to have somebody from the team standing up there in front of judge pointing out all of the reasons why he's not worth the money he wants 
those arbitration hearings linger. You remember Absolutely. You know, that arbitration hearing got really ugly, and he was yep. a four-time all-star at that point. Yep. Um, you know, it just those things don't seem to end well, and everybody says the right things. Oh, it's just business, and it's part of the game. But you have to imagine that those feelings linger a little bit. And so, you know, the Yankees took their shot. Uh, Judge had every right to, to decline the contract and think he's worth more. And if he goes out and hits 45 home runs and finishes in the top three of the MVP, he might get more. Um, but you know, what if he, uh, what if he trains a hamstring and misses two months? That's going to, that's going to, which, hurt you know, guy. is so, very much his, his, uh, you know, MO too. I mean, that is, you know, he's got to be very careful about that because showing up is part of it. I mean, we all know how talented yeah. he is, but he's a very big man who's going into his thirties now. And he's a very big man and he has been injury prone at times. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very ticklish thing with him uh, right now. That's to me symbolizes everything about the Yankees, the Yankees, this whole group, there's talent there. There's pronounced talent there, but they're always teetering on the brink of something going wrong. Uh, This group is never just rock solid, you know, the other group that we lived through, that great team, you know, that, that we, we lived through, those were rock-solid guys. They were just, in every way, they weren't the biggest stars. They weren't as big a star as Judge. You know, O'Neal or Bernie, they weren't as big a star as Judge. But you know what? Those are the kind of guys you build the lineup around. And that's the team that I think you try to build. You don't try and build around one guy. Ask the Angels. Yeah, look at the guys they've yeah. had, and they can't get to 500. I mean, you don't want to build a baseball team around one player. It does not work. It does not you work. Know. You want guys who can contribute, and you don't have to have the best player. Mike, you look back at those teams. What were we talking about earlier, the rotation? I mean, you look at those teams with Cohn and Pettit and Clemens and Duque and yep. Wells, and you know they had pitching for days. And, and, deep, and a, deep, Joe, a deep, Joe, versatile bullpen. A deep, versatile right. bullpen, yes. And I remember Joe Torre said he first walked into to spring training in 96, and he couldn't believe all the pitchers. He had never had pit, that many pitchers, good pitchers on a team, uh, and they didn't even have some of the guys who ended up being big parts of that dynasty yet. They didn't even know who Mariano Rivera was at that point. Um, this team, I, again, I think the winning is what takes the burden off. That 96 to 2001 team, they won in 96. It took the pressure off of them. Even when they lost in 97, as devastating as it was, they knew what it took to win. Obviously, they went on and won the next three after that. But I think just having the one first one takes some of the pressure off. And yet now you have a team, this is the first year with Brett Gardner not there, where you don't have anybody on this roster who has won a World Series as a member of the Yankees. And amazingly, think about how much this franchise would have changed, Mark, if it hadn't won in 09. I mean, oh, Cashman wouldn't be there. There's other people who wouldn't even be in that organization anymore if they hadn't won in 09. That 09 championship, which is singular over a 20-year period, meant a lot to a lot of careers. Oh, when we did the book on, on the 2019 Mission 27, Cashman told us you know, right away, he said it was so important to win that title, not only because of all the money they, you know, they dropped $423 right, million dollars in free yep. agents that winter and everything else. First year at the new stadium. Imagine if they hadn't won in 09. You'd already been hearing for years about, oh, it was the curse of the old Yankee Stadium yep. and they should never have moved across the street. Yep. Getting that 09 championship was so important for so many people. It ended up being the only title of A-Rod's career, the only title of Teixeira's career, the only title of Sabathia's career. These are These are big-time players who had their one shining moment, and they thought they were going to be more. And they got back to the ALCS, and they, you know, they were a good team for several years, but they never got back to the top of that mountain. And if you look back at 09, and if they don't win that World Series, uh, a lot of careers look a lot different. You know, I was a proponent of building a new stadium, and, and for a lot of reasons. And there are a lot of reasons why the stadium had to be built. First of all, the old stadium was falling down. Secondly, the infrastructure was falling down. Third, you needed to have certain things where you could come plug in a truck that people don't understand that that's a big part of the world now. You got to be able to come in and plug a truck into the building and the, tr- the building has to be accessible to, to certain kinds of broadcasts and certain kinds of uh, internet and everything else that wasn't there in the old stadium. So there's a lot of reasons. And then, of course, locker rooms and, and uh, having luxury boxes and stuff like that. But I also understand, and I'd say it about two things. I think the stadium being built hurt the Yankees, and I think the stadium 
has destroyed the football giants. They didn't need the stadium, and it destroyed them having a new stadium. And I really think I've, I've really gone a different route on, and you see these beautiful new ballparks around the world that we're not tied to, you know, in L.A. or in Dallas, that are, and they're magnificent structures, the likes of which we don't seem to be able to build in New York for whatever reason. But they're magnificent buildings with everything in them and every amenity and they look like spaceships but you know what i think both franchises were hurt by their new buildings i think the yankees were in retrospect and i was wrong about that i think it really hurt them more on the field than i thought it would and i think it destroyed i can go back and give you a chapter and verse why it has destroyed the football giants I haven't even been to MetLife Stadium since it opened, so I can't speak. That's a disaster. That's, that's, that's a stadium that, is, that, that the old stadium was a better stadium. The old stadium was a better stadium than that stadium. That's how bad that one is. Yankee Stadium at least has some amenities. I mean, but, hey, you know what? I understand why and all the different things from TV standpoint and technology. It's so imperative that you have what these networks need uh, rather than not have it. And they can't come plug into your building. They got to be in the street. They got to do this. They got to do that. That's a huge issue. You got to be able to just be able to plug in and go. And especially for football teams. But the bottom line is it really does change your franchise. And it did change those two franchises. It really did. I think it hurt the Yankees. I think not having the stadium has hurt the Yankees. I think for the Yankees, it helped them in terms of the player aspect of it. I mean, as much as the history of the old Yankee Stadium was was nice to talk about and uh, and you know, reminisce for fans, players want big locker rooms. They want first class training facilities. Yep. They have stuff at this stadium that they no could question. never have had. No question. And that stadium where was I falling down. Let's be honest, them. it was falling right. down. I mean, there were yeah. beams falling yeah. in the middle of the game. Yeah. Where yeah. I think the the new stadium has hurt the Yankees. Is just in the atmosphere of the home field advantage. You remember, yep. you know, you'd be standing on that field uh, during batting practice before a playoff game, and you felt like the the upper deck was about to fall on top of you. It yep. was so close and high and loud. It doesn't have the same volume. Now, look, it still gets loud there, but it doesn't have that same intimidation factor where a guy stands at the plate and you literally feel like the guy in the upper deck is standing right over you. That doesn't happen anymore. It's a much wider concourse. It's a much wider, um, you know, setting. So I think the home field advantage has been hurt a little bit, but at the same time, I think it's been a lot easier to try to, um, you know, sell people on New York and, and Yankee Stadium and, uh, you know, players-wise because of all the amenities and all of the, uh, you know, training facilities and everything else because you you need to advance in those aspects in, in this world of baseball where almost every team has a new stadium, almost every team has these first-class facilities, and if you're trying to recruit free agents and saying, "Hey, uh, Mickey Mantle played here," they're going to say, "That's great. Where's your uh, Where's your underwater treadmill?" Yeah, absolutely true. We're talking about Mark Feinstein. Give me uh, a minute on the Mets. Uh, you're more known for being around the Yankees and the Mets, but uh, have you spent a lot of time around this Mets team? Not a whole lot, obviously. The last couple of years, you haven't been able to spend a lot of time around anybody. Right. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people. I didn't. I did not make it to uh, to Port St. Lucie this year with the abbreviated spring training. Um, what's but, your thoughts you know, about the I've, owner? Have you had any contact with the owner? I have had no contact with him. Actually, okay. I've, I've met him once very briefly in a group. Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to get, get a sit down and uh, get to know him. Not a easy. Bit, not easy. Obviously yeah. not easy. Obviously no. I know Billy Epler very well from his days with the Yankees. And, and how uh, about yeah, Buck? I mean, we all, we all know, I mean, Buck and I go and back 30 years. <laughs> I mean, we, we all know Buck. We all talk to Buck. I mean, so I, I mean, we, we all go way back with Buck. I mean, probably as much as anybody who's been in this town in a long time. I mean, everyone, everyone in the media has a, you know, a very close relationship with Buck going back for generation. Uh, what's, what's your thought about Buck and, uh, and, and fitting in with that franchise? I thought Buck was probably the most important acquisition they made this offseason. Uh, as much as as big as Scherzer is and as great as he is, um, and as great as you know some of the other, you know, Marte and, and Escobar, some of these other guys they brought in, they needed a guy like Buck to come in and just settle things down. Players are going to look at Buck, and this is nothing against Luis Rojas. I think he's a really nice guy and a good baseball man, and I think he's, uh, you know, got a future as a manager somewhere else at, at some point. But the way that things had gone with the Mets, they needed somebody – with some gravitas who could come in and say, this is how we do things. And no one's going to question him. No one's going to look at him and say, does he know what he's doing? He's had enough success over the years. I think he's in a position where uh, with an owner like he has, his voice still is going to matter in that room. 
Um, and I'm not sure that would have been the case if Rojas had stayed or if they had brought in another young, inexperienced manager. They needed a guy, uh, you know, like like Buck Walter, like um, you know somebody like that to uh, you know a Bochi type, one of those guys to come in and sort of just say, okay, uh, there's a new sheriff in town. Let's uh, let's let's do things this way. I don't think there's any question. All right, so the the book is the franchise comes out in early June, uh, so we'll be looking for that. Thanks for a couple of minutes. Appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. Anytime, Mike. Thank you. Mark Feinstein, we'll be back with Bobby Valentine right after this. You're listening to the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, on this week's podcast, we welcome in uh, Bobby Valentine. The teams have had a week of baseball under their belt. And, Bobby, he, here's my, my premise. Um if a bad team gets off fast, Colorado's four and one. Let's say they get off eight and two or nine and one. How much does a quick start help a bad team that we thought out of the box was a team that people thought would win sixty or seventy games or sixty-five games? Does it help, or does it really not matter if you get off to the quick start? Can you build something with the quick start to a baseball season? Well, it's such a long season, and there's so many good teams out there that, um, you know, the cream rises to the top, and you usually reach your level regardless of the start you get. Uh, you know, going through a season, Mike, um, you know, there's hot streaks and cold streaks, and everyone's going to go two and two and eight in a 10-game streak, and uh, everyone's going to have a uh, little winning streak. But um, I, I don't, I don't think the – you know, six games uh, start is going to matter to uh, the end of the season. Are you a believer like Sparky Anderson was where everyone's going to win a third, everyone's going to lose a third, and what you do with that middle third is going to define your season? Well, definitely. You know, the the, uh, lousy teams are going to lose 100 games, and uh, they're going to lose them because, uh, you know, those middle games that – you know, are decided by one run or two runs are going to go the other way. Uh, we've seen a couple of sensational starts. The Stephen Kwan, who people may have uh, had a chance to see, or at least they've heard about, coming out of the box, Francona waxing poetic on this kid, especially the one at bat that he turned into a triple. Uh, he has gotten off insanely quick. How about these guys now and these talents coming out so prodigiously coming out and just performing so well, so young. Yeah. I think the feeder system now, especially the college system and the, and the minor leagues are, um, you know, using not only the analytics, but using uh, the information that they have to train people better, to make them stronger, faster, um, uh, at an earlier age and, um, you know, young, young players can step right in now and make a huge difference. So you think Bobby, that they're better, that they're better in the old days. Let's go back to the, go back 40, 50 years, guys would spend more time in the minors. They would maybe play, uh, you know, different levels of ball before her. They wouldn't be rushed as quickly as these guys are now for economic reasons. And people who say, well, they don't come up polished, you know, they, they're, they're rough around the edges. But now we're seeing the con- conversely, we're seeing these youngsters come up and they seem to have a polish that we didn't see in the past. So is the teaching just better on the, on the lower levels for these guys now? And even in college, is the teaching much better for them? The information is so much better, Mike, um, that um, it, it's easier to to be good. You know, there's not as much confusion as uh, what to do and how to do it. Everyone's pretty much on the same page. And, um, you know, again, this, the strength and conditioning programs of, of young people now um, let them let their bodies uh, mature quicker. They're 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 hitting the road running and. Um, you know, uh, information's the key. You know, they said, you know, as an example, in Cleveland, people were knocking them for not going out and adding, you know, not going out and spending any money and adding to their franchise. And they said, hey, you know, we think we have some 
some kids we want to look at. We think we have some people that we can, you know, that can make a difference, you know, and then they, they flash these kids and the kid comes out and, you know, has a couple of days like that. Now I don't expect him to hit 700, but the point is he just, (laughs) I mean, to come out and open up the way he's opened up is just unbelievable. Yeah. On base and, and getting hits and, um, you know, you know, that's a great start. And, uh, again, the, the sec- 600 at bats, uh, for a hitter, um, usually tell the story and it's, it's not about the, the first 20 or the last 20, it's the 600. And, you know, the, the one thing you can't teach, um, is experience and experience in a major league season is how to get out of a slump when you're in it. How do you, how to, um, eliminate the distractions when, when you're being distracted and, you know, when you get a lot of attention on you, um, that's an, a distraction. And when high expectation is put on you, that becomes a distraction and it becomes, um, you know, very challenging. You can't, you can't teach experience. Let me go back and, uh, for, and we'll, we'll do a little bit of a history lesson here for two reasons. One, um, the Yankees have a bobblehead day for Elston Howard. Now, most of these fans don't know Elston Howard, the first black Yankee player. He, the Yankees had three catches. They had Yogi, who was later in his career. They had Johnny Blanchett, who was also a great pinch hitter from the left side. They had Elston Howard, who was a wonderful everyday catcher who could also play a little outfield and was a terrific right-handed hitter. Um, I saw Elston Howard play. You saw Elston Howard play. Tell the folks something about Elston Howard. Well, you know, he was one of the number 32s to win an MVP uh, that that year back in 69, I guess. 63 and, uh, won the MVP. Yep, had a great year. Yep, I mean, great year. I mean yeah, right. right. Um, and, you know, he he mo- he moved Yogi Berra to left field. Let's face it. Yep. Yogi Berra is one of you know, talking about MVPs, talking about great players and great hitters. Um, you know, he was good enough to uh, step in and move Yogi to left field and uh, – you know, hit in the middle of the Bombers lineup as a right-handed uh, power hitter um, and being the first black player to play in, in, in the Yankee pinstripes. And the Yankees the, were late. You know, people always criticize the Red Sox and stuff. The Yankees were late. to, to really? they, you know, they, 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 they took their time to, to put a black player in their uniform. They didn't do it right away. Oh, yeah. They, they you know, from 47 to... You know, uh, mid fifties, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, but Elson Howard, I remember um, as you do, as the guy with great power to right center field. Yeah, hit the ball to right you know, field. Where, yeah, big strong guy hit the ball to right center field a lot. Yeah. He was slow as a horse, but he was a really good, really good catcher. Uh, really, uh, and, and a classy. Quiet big man. That's what I remember about him. Went to the Red Sox. The Yankees loaned him in '67, and he caught for that Red Sox team down the stretch. The, uh, he was on loan to that team for a little while late in his career. So, uh, really, a wonderful catcher, and as you said, a guy with a lot of power to right center field, which you didn't see that often. Now you see it all the time. The other one is even uh, more prominent. They're going to have the Tom Seaver statue. Uh, unveiled on Friday uh, when the Mets have their home opener. And I saw Siva break in. So that's how I, I, I'm, old, I'm old enough to have seen as a teenager Siva break in. And he really changed that franchise from when they were lovable clowns to where he didn't take anything as being lovable. He didn't want to lose. And when they had Siva and Kuzman, all of a sudden they became a very different team very quickly. I say this, uh, Bobby, then I want your opinion of him. I thought that soup to nuts, he was the most professional pitcher day in and day out I ever saw in my life. Well, you know, I, I got to play a little with him and then coached him. And, um, you know, he was that vintage of intelligent pitchers. Um, you know, college guy went to USC. Um, he he prided, prided himself on his ability to get a hit. Uh, he was a great fielder and, and practiced his fielding all of the time. But uh, most importantly, you know, when he was on the mound, he was, he was a great, great competitor with uh, outstanding stuff. And uh, he, he was one of the guys uh, 
Mike early on there in, you know, the early seventies and, and late sixties who, who determined that you could pitch away. You could, you could throw hitters outside. You didn't have to bust them inside and break their bats. But if you had the control and the excellence that Tom Seaver had, uh, you could throw that fastball bullet away and you could throw a slider off of it. And you didn't, you didn't have to mess with that inside part of the plate where the, where most hitters, um, you know, until the Lau Lau era, um, you know, were guys who stepped out when they, when they took their stride and they, they stepped out a little because they wanted the ball in to pull. And, um, you know, Tom, Tom made people uh, rethink how to, how to hit uh, because he, he, and then, you know, later catfish Hunter, who, who was so spectacular at doing it also um, and, and others just decided to work the plate away. Rube Walker uh, believed in leg drive, believed in using the lower body and had Seaver and he had Ryan, two of the really power pitching careers that, were unwavering in terms of staying healthy and in terms of pitching incredible amounts of innings and going a long time. Siva won 300 games. He, you know, he, he was an incredibly durable pitcher. Ryan, maybe the most durable power pitcher in the history of the sport. And they used that leg drive, right? That, that, that was the, 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 the get the knee dirty, the whole idea of just driving with those big trunks to, to get their power. Yeah, get their power and uh, increase their their stride. You know, they had such long strides. And, uh, you know, that's why Tom's knee got dirty because he was down the hill. He was closer to the hitter when he released the ball with a a stride that I think was longer than he was tall. Um, A lot of of pitchers have strides about 80% of their height. Uh, but, uh, but Tom was, was, had a stride that was, um, you know, six feet long. So, um, you know, he, he worked hard, um, understood how to pitch was, um, you're, you're right. He had great, great, um, uh, midsection core strength and leg strength that, um, you know, kept his arm healthy and, and, um, Allowed him to throw that ninety-six mile an hour fastball wherever he wanted. He had he had such great control and and what a memory, you know. Without a computer, um, he, you know, I got a I got a game winning hit against him in nineteen seventy one. Right, I coached with him and then uh, um, played with him in seventy seven. Then coached uh, there in the early eighties. Every almost every time he talked about. Um, me as a hitter, he talked about the first at bat that I got a game when he hit against him, and he remembered the pitch, he remembered the sequence, he remembered the at bat better than I did, and uh, it's it, you know it, it's a great memory of me, mine uh, that I hit a ball down the left field line against them because he made a mistake inside. Um, but uh, for for him to remember it was was remarkable. You know, for Mets fans, it's one, maybe the darkest day uh, in the history of the franchise when they traded them, uh, and the whole thing with, with that went on. With not only the recount, all the nonsense, but the bottom line is that you had a fight with the front office that was carried on through the newspapers with Dick Young and the whole thing. The bottom line was, though, what people don't realize is. They remember the 69 Mets, and he was 25-7. and seven. They had that amazing year. They won 100 games. They were not a good team after that. And he was – he won 20 games with teams that were – they were barely 500 teams, those teams. They, they – no run support. I mean, and he would go 21-12 and 12 and 20-10 and 10 and 19-10 and 10 with some bad teams. And still was able to win that many games and stay on the mound in those games. And I mean, to me, what I, what I remember him, and it's funny, um, uh, he wasn't a Mike and a Mad Dog fan to say the least, uh, because we were very hard on Buddy Harrelson when he managed, and that was his best buddy. So I understood that. I did understand it. But the bottom line is, uh, I say I don't care about that. I paid a compliment to the guy as a pitcher. He was to me the most 
exacting and professional pitcher. I remember two guys as being unbelievably professional. You mentioned Catfish Hunter, which I agree in the same boat. Mel Stottlemyre was one and pitched on some terrible Yankee teams. He would have been a great pitcher otherwise. And then Siva, he was so precise and so professional with every pitch in every outing. He just seemed to pitch the same seven, eight innings every game. <laughs> he really, he really was spectacular. And, you know, one of the ovations that I remember the most was uh, when the Mets brought him back. Right. And, um, you know, he warmed up in the bullpen. There's a full house. And uh, when he left the bullpen and walked from the bullpen to the dugout, there was a standing ovation from the entire crowd the entire time that he walked to the dugout. It was, uh, I still get chills thinking about it. It was really spectacular. And uh, to think that he ever left a franchise was, was tragic. Crazy, in itself. Yeah. To think that he threw a no-hitter when he left yep. the franchise is is uh, disheartening, you know, to say the least. And um, I'm glad that they're building a statue after uh, uh, in, in his memory because um, he was terrific and uh, deserved the name. That's it. And gone too soon. 311 wins. And for Met fans, he has always been a source of great pride uh, because he was that good. Uh, he really was. And for those who only know the name, uh, he was, uh, you know, if you think of Roger Clemens, he was better. Uh, if you think of guys like that, and that's saying a lot because Clemens was a brilliant, brilliant pitcher. I mean, so uh, that's what you think of when, uh, you know, those great Met teams with Kuzman and uh, Nolan Ryan and uh, Gary Gentry and the pitching they had. Uh, but he deserves that statue outside the stadium, which he will get uh, on Friday when the Mets uh, have their opener because the Mets really have not embraced their history that much. And it's hard being in the same town as the Yankees, no question. But this is a big positive for them to put that statue outside. Well, Steve Cohen's doing, I think, mostly everything correctly and uh, and honoring uh, the past with Tom Seaver's um, statue, but also with an old-timers day game, bringing back uh, old Mets, which they're going to do this year in, in August, is is exactly what the franchise needs. Um, you know, just because guys uh, didn't win a world championship, they they gave their their some of them gave their entire career to the New York Mets. They they toiled, they worked hard, they did everything they could to uh, be as good as they could be and have their franchise be as good as it could be, and and they need to be respected. And it's uh, and Bobby is a link, uh, uh, very much so, to Friday, which is Jackie Robinson Day, as always uh, in Major League Baseball. It's also the Met Open, and everybody wears forty-two because his father-in-law probably stood up for Jackie Robinson more than anybody. The history books has been very kind to Ralph Branker, who was a wonderful guy, and. Uh, Ralph Branca uh, probably took Jackie's back more than just about any player in baseball. I mean, probably showed that when it wasn't popular, stood up. And I know Pee Wee Reese did later on, but right from the beginning, the everything you ever see, no matter what movie it is or what story you read, Ralph Branca was unbelievably generous and, and courageous in a Jackie Robinson story. Well, you know, he grew up in Mount Vernon. It was uh, a mixed neighborhood, to say the least. And, uh, you know, he's an intelligent guy. Ralph Branca went to NYU. So uh, he got it a little quicker than most others. And, um, you know, he always thought that it was one of the, the honors of his life to to be a friend of Jackie and, and his family and um, to, to play with him. And, you know, he would be proudly wear number 42 uh, if he was playing today. Well, he deserves that because, you know what, he did stand up. And a lot of guys, it was a tough transition for a lot of those players, uh, obviously, at, at that time. And to have the sport change when you realize, you know, how much that changed the sport for the right, uh, you know, in the right way uh, to see and, and changed America, as a matter of fact. So, I mean, it's that important, and he is that important a person. But in that whole Jackie Robinson story, uh, Ralph Branca plays a – 
Very, very important role anytime uh, you watch any part of that story because uh, he was there and by his side and, and very, very prominently there in, in, in a big way. And, you know, he should be commended for that in his uh, memory. He's been gone for how long has he been gone now, Ralph? Whoa. We're going on four years now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, wow. and dearly missed. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, I listen, uh, quick thought on the Yanks and Mets is that they've both gotten off okay. Uh, the Mets, if they had uh, handled the end of the games well, could be sitting here undefeated today that they're four and two. Uh, they've looked pretty good. They've gotten uh, performances here and there that have been pretty good. They still have some issues, though with getting guys healthy in this rotation. What's your thoughts quickly on the Mets and the Yanks? Um, I think they're both right where they should be um, trying to figure out the, the health, uh, especially of starting pitchers. Um, but the, the Mets, you know, they could be six and zero easily yeah. uh, fixing, fixing that eighth inning uh, is a situation and a challenge for Buck. There's no doubt about that. It's been a Achilles heel for a while now. Um, but I think he'll be able to do it, and uh, I think they're going to win a lot of games this year. The Yankees and that you know, third guy, dis- Bobby, that third batter can yeah. bite you. That third batter can—that is a tough. That's a tough one. I don't like that rule, but I'll tell you, that rule can come back to bite you. It sure can. <laughs> it's it's tough. It 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 makes you think um, and manage a lot more than just the one batter. Uh, a uh, relief pitcher and, and uh, you know, it, it's turned around on buck twice now and yep. we'll see, we'll see how, how much further it goes. Um, and, you know, I think the distraction a little with, um, um, with, with uh, Aaron judge uh, was maybe a little distraction early for the Yankees, but they'll get over it as they always do. They're a very good team. Um, yeah. We're, we're going to have really good players, and really good teams in New York this year, and that's going to make baseball very exciting. The Yankees clearly went into the season knowing they were going to juggle an extra regular player on a daily basis. Is that not as tough as everyone's making it out to be, or is it as tough as everybody's making it out to be? It is such the norm, um, Mike, that uh, you know you just have to you have to just buckle your seatbelt and get used to it. Um, God, I. I I remember when, when I managed the biggest criticism, I was criticized for a lot of things I did, but probably the thing I, I got criticized the most for was the multiple lineups that I would have over a hundred lineups every year that I managed because I tried to rest players and I tried to match up with the opposing, the opposing bullpen as well as the starting pitching. And that's the norm. Now rest is such a, a norm that, um, you know, you, you saw, uh, Bregman get two home hit uh, uh, home runs in back to back games in the third game he was uh, rested you know that was unheard of uh, twenty years ago if a guy was hitting home runs he was in there until he was striking out and um, uh, you'll just see that every with every team and you'll see uh, mixing and matching and rotating people around and wondering why. Uh, the star players not playing on a Sunday afternoon, and it's just because rest is um, in matchups, but rest is paramount. Well, your criticism was ridiculous because you were resting a catcher. He has to have a day off. I mean, my God, he's a catcher. And any day you give him off is going to tick off somebody, and that was more because of his popularity than anything else. I mean, people just didn't like when he was. they got to the ballpark and the kids deflated because his hero was not in the lineup. I understand that. When I was a kid and I went to the game and Mickey Mantle wasn't in the lineup, I was crushed. So, I mean, it, that, that's just human nature. Yes, I guess. Uh, it, it turned out that, uh, you know, when Mike Piazza, who's a Hall of Fame, great great player uh, and a great guy. Uh, you know, when, when he needed a rest, it seemed like that was the day that every father brought their kid <laughs> to the game and, and didn't get to see him. I don't know what the heck it was, <laughs> but, but it was, it was really something that uh, I, I had more letters uh, telling me how disappointed uh, people were uh, about Mike not playing than uh, almost any other, any other thing that uh, I ever got uh, letters for. I did an interview once, Bobby, with Ralph Houck, and he said that late in his career, when he was managing Mantle, they'd be on the road, and he'd get a call in his hotel room, and the guy'd say, 
Mr. Hack, I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm going to drive 500 miles with my son if Mickey's going to play. Could you just give me a hint if he's going to be in the lineup tonight? He said it used to happen all the time in those last couple of years. That's how much people want to see him in the lineup. Well, and and thinking of the world that we're in and the uh, and the podcast that we're on, Mike, that uh, you know, Bet Rivers and other betting establishments. Um, uh, set lines for games and they have to set lines without knowing what the lineup is. Um, and, and some of these lineups, you know, change in the last minute, they, they go right up until, uh, yep. 20 minutes before the game. And then the lineup is posted. So it, it makes those people out there who are trying to uh, wager on a game, uh, quite anxious. Also, no question. Good point. Thanks, Bobby. We'll try talk next week. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mike. All right, Bobby Valentine, and he's right about that. And it's even true, especially true this year in the NBA. I mean, and the NBA has to do something about it. So many star players sit out so many games. You cannot, you have to be so judicious up to the minute in the NBA, not in the playoffs, which we're heading to now, but in the regular season, you just never know minute to minute. You could not make a wager. You could tell by the line if you know the game that's that well. But for the most part, the line will adjust. In baseball, it's a pitcher line. It, it, the lineup doesn't change when a star player is out of the lineup. It really doesn't. It only changes when it's dealing with the pitcher. It's always a pitcher line. That's, that's what it is. The line is always a pitcher line in baseball. And you can have a very different lineup, though. If you take a star out of one of these bad teams – hey, it puts a huge hole right in the middle of that lineup. So it does make a very, very big difference. And we're obviously coming to you on the uh, Bet Rivers uh, podcast, the Mike Francis podcast, betrivers.com. And enjoy your baseball week. We'll see you next Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hey, it's Mike Miss here. What a time to be a Philly sports fan, and you can share the excitement with me each week on the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Listen and subscribe to the Mike Missinelli Podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider.